Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. You don't actually listen to the podcast, do you, Jeff? No, <laughs> I don't. I uh, I kind of have to, incidentally, because I edit it, and it's you know <laughs> kind of part for the course. There, it needs to be done. I don't uh, like listening to myself sound stupid. Right? I don't. Uh, I don't listen to the whole thing. I, ju- I just listen to the bits and pieces. I kind of have to 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 make it cohesive. You know what I mean? But uh, yes. I made the mistake of listening to the beginning of last week's, and like the first thing that popped into my head is like, oh, here you are complaining about how you have to eat your groceries instead of going out to eat, and some people in the world are starving, and they can't afford meals. <laughs> Spoiled brats. <laughs> I remember that conversation. I know. And then there was like this whole talk about money, which um, I'm kind of aware in the back of my mind whenever we talk about finances and stuff that some people just find that to be quite rude, crass even. Some eh. cultures, especially, you know. That's a stupid point. <laughs> it is. It's like there's no reason for people to feel weird about money. Mm. Money's other weird, than though. their own particular insecurity. It's like our our primary currency. We have we have time and we have money. Right. And it's uh, I don't know. Some people are very jealous of that information and they don't want it out. Especially companies, you know, because that can cause problems. If like, oh, you find out your buddy's salary and you're like, what? He's making you know, 10K more than me, and I've got a year more experience, and that just, that's that never goes well, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's like, it's bad for the company, but it's good for the employees, you know? Like, it may not feel good when you find out someone is making more than you, but that's good information for the collective workers to have. Yeah. Hmm. But it's something that the company wants to keep buried. Like, there's a lot of pressure from the people that pay you not to expose that information. That's true. That's true. You bring up good points, sir. Yes. Um, I also noticed that we, especially me, I'll point the finger at myself. We tend to have these like uh, these these trains of thought that uh, lose us. We have these train bosses <laughs> of thoughts, and then like especially me, I'll get like halfway through it, and then either I'll lose it or the conversation will just kind of change, you know. And yeah. uh, yesterday, I was having this thought about Kickstarter. I know that a lot of our listeners are really interested in it because it can be a fast track to kind of going full time independent. And we found a really good website. Uh, there's this person who runs, I don't know how to pronounce this, Stone Mayer Games. <laughs> it's one of those words, M-A-I-E-R. Link in the show notes. But, uh, oh, man, so much good Kickstarter information. Yeah, I am, you linked me to a couple of those articles, and they're really, really good. Good grief. We were having talks about, like, you know, what are some best practices? Should we do this because we did it last time? Should we do this differently because it didn't work so great? And some things we just, we I don't know, man. I, I don't have the information. I, I, I've been trying really hard to research Kickstarter, and I, I do everything, everything I can to find as many articles and read them. I don't know where this site's been hiding from me, but it's got, like, it's like 100 lessons or something, and... Uh, a lot of them are that really granular, like, should you have a $1 reward tier? Let's talk about why that's valuable and why you might want that, that kind of stuff. You also linked me to a really cool infographic. Infographic, um, yeah. I don't think it was from the same site, but it also no. had, it was like the rule of threes. Yeah. I'm thinking the way I found this was, it was on our game dev probably, which is one of the reasons I still follow that uh, that subreddit to this day. Uh, but it was like someone asking about Kickstarter and, you know, nothing really Im- very good information in the post itself. But some of the comments, uh, I believe, are what led me to, one, that infographic, and two, uh, that website with all that valuable information. Nice. But anywho, good stuff if you are into the business side of game dev. But if you're not, you might care more about the next topic, which is, what were you doing in the stream yesterday, sir? Uh, all kinds of stuff. All kinds. Let's hear it. Right. Well, so... 
I kind of like the, I was thinking about the video stuff and you know how we talked about on Lost Cast, how we like to have like a uh, kind of recap of the previous episode and then you say what you're going to do about in the current episode and then like next week we're going to do X. Right. It occurred to me that's so much easier with the live stream. Yeah. Uh, because it's like this consistent project that you're working on, you know, where like, uh, whereas Lost Cast is kind of, you know, tends to be all over the map. Everywhere. And so the topics don't necessarily kind of bleed into each other. Um, but with the live stream, it's really easy because you can say, you know, okay, here's what I did since last time. And, you know, here's some of the bugs I fixed or whatever. And then here's what we're going to do today. And you do that. And then you can talk about maybe the next steps uh, for the next episode or something. I feel like you're starting to find your stride. And Sweet. That sounds about right because you've been doing it for, what, a month or maybe two now? Ballparkish, a little bit more than two. I think there's been about ten episodes. Mm-hmm. So it's about you know, two, you know, eight, ten weeks. Oh, good grief! Time is flying, man. I know that's crazy. What in the world? Um, but anyways, uh, last week I did a lot of work on the tongue mechanic. Nice. So we talked a little bit about the various uses of the tongue, but I've actually been implementing it uh, in the game over the past week, and. I'm really happy with where that stuff is headed, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I am too. It looks it looks great. It's starting to feel pretty good, and uh, we've only just begun. Like this is the first step. We haven't, you know, had a polish phase. We haven't had a phase where we go through and tweak everything. And and you know, we're not going to necessarily yet because there's not enough of a world to interact with just yet. Right, but, like, but even just the simple interactions that we've uh, prototyped so far are feeling pretty cool. Yeah, even just these first couple of steps show a lot of promise. So, uh, specifically, I was working on the uh, various uh, abilities that the tongue can have. So, by default, the tongue can just interact with stuff. So, like, you can lick an NPC and they'll talk to you. Love it. Um, or, you know, perhaps that'll be like licking a switch or opening a chest with your tongue. Who knows? We'll see how that interaction works out. But that, the basic idea is that you kind of start with this tongue where you can just interact with stuff. Um, and then kind of started building upon that. And so the first thing I did was actually make a grappling hook out of the tongue. The hook shot from Zelda. Exactly. Yeah. You shoot it out, it attaches to something and then it kind of pulls the player towards it. Um, that was actually the easiest extra behavior for the tongue. I have to uh, say that's surprising. I wouldn't have thought that would be the easiest because it's got more of, you know, these two entities that kind of have to interact with each other. And that's, that's a common thing in any game dev stack is, you know, one entity talking to another is sometimes more complicated than it would need to be, right? But it kind of was already that way. Because when the tongue goes out, it comes back to the player. Right. And so you already had this situation where the tongue was interacting with another entity. And so really, the grappling hook is just the reverse, right? The tongue goes out like normal. And then instead of returning, once it, you know, hits its destination or whatever, then it pulls the host, you know, the parent object towards it instead of recoiling towards the parent object. So is that how it works? Raga would be the parent object and the tongue is a child, kind of like we would do it uh, in Jin. Yes. Nice. Well, you know, Jin didn't really have parent-child relationships for entities. Not for entities, but that's probably the way that we would do it with the view. And then the entity itself would probably have a script and it wouldn't be parent-child, but the script would have pretty much a reference to the tongue object, right? Right. That's how the boomerangs worked in AWL. Yeah. Um, basically, 
the player spawned them and then they had a reference to the parent. And so then the boomerang knew, you know, and the boomerang was more intelligent than the tongue actually, right? Because you could fire the boomerang, it could move around the room and the boomerang would alter its trajectory to come back to you. Yeah, that's true. Whereas with the tongue, it's kind of just in place. Yeah. It's always one very known direction it'll be heading. So that was uh, pretty fun and easy. And then the next thing I did uh, was the, like, pick up an object and bring it towards you. So, like, a power-up or, like, a health restore, you know, some kind of consumable object. So something that you collect, say, like, a, a coin in the Mario games, right? Right. So, like, there's a coin sitting there. I touch it. The coin disappears. It no longer exists in the game world. And then, you know, usually something will increment. Like, I have more coins now or something. Right. That was actually pretty easy because all I did there was when the tongue collides with something that's collectible, it just uh, moves it along with itself as it recoils. Yeah. And then when it gets to the player, it just drops it, essentially. Stops interacting with it. And at that point, the player then collides with it as if it would, as if it just ran over it. As if the player just ran over it. So, um, a lot of reuse there, which is kind of fun. And that was different than a Wizard's Lizard 1 boomerangs, because those would kind of just trigger the collection event, right? Right, yeah. So the boomerangs were like proxy collectors for their parent object. And so like when you shot a boomerang, the second it collided with a piece of gold, you would collect it at that moment. Whereas with the tongue, the tongue grabs it, drags it towards you. And then when it collides with you, that's when you collect it. Gotcha. So that brings up some cases that uh, might be issues or we might want like, to like talk out design-wise. But like, let's say, for example, you want to shoot your tongue and there's like, picture you're shooting your tongue from left to, to right. And to your right, there are two objects in your way, right? Like one way could be that the tongue grabs the first, continues to the second, grabs them both. Another way could be that the moment it hits the first object, it just comes back. Right. So the way that it's coded right now is that the first time it hits anything that it can interact with, either like picking it up, grappling, or like it's a wall and it wants to return, it'll stop. Nice. Um, And so in the case that you're just just describing, you would hit the first one and then immediately start recoiling once it has that. Nice. That sounds really good design-wise. It's very simple. And uh, it can create more depth with the mechanic as well, because there might be times, especially because the tongue mechanic essentially freezes player movement, it might be something that you need to time very carefully. And so if you grab something that's closer to you and the tongue will come back faster than it normally would, there are game design implications there, right? Yeah, you're stunned for a smaller amount of time. Interesting. I like it. I like these very simple mechanics that actually have a lot of depth to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The next one is one that I think is really cool is the pick up and carry mechanic where uh, you shoot your tongue out and it grabs onto an object that can be carried and then um, that object is then in your mouth, right? Yeah. And uh, the interesting game design implications there are once an object is in your mouth, um, I've made it so you can't attack anymore. You can't headbutt. Um, Because the way that it works is that once you um, put something in your mouth with the tongue, your uh the next time you try and use the tongue button it'll drop it and uh if you try to use the attack button which is normally headbutt it'll spit it out with yeah. some velocity that makes a lot of sense we, we had talked about the difference between you know i'm going to drop this item versus i'm going to throw this item and those can be two like some games don't care it's kind of all the same and some games you put it down that's your only option some games throwing is your only option and some games that kind of settle in the middle i feel like um Yoshi settles in the middle somewhere where you're not putting it at your feet. You're kind of tossing it 
in front of you a little bit. Right. And we talked about like definitely hitting the tongue button when you've got something in your mouth. You should not just shoot your tongue out because that's that doesn't make any sense. So we were thinking maybe you spit it, maybe you drop it, whatever. We were thinking like maybe if you're moving, that would be the time to trigger a, uh, like a launch instead of a drop. Um, but currently, yeah, what we're thinking is the headbutt will then be kind of overridden instead of headbutt. It is now, you know, shoot, and then the tongue would be drop. Right. So it's kind of interesting because you would have you you have kind of more control at your fingertips, but you're also limited with the mechanics you can use. I like that because it's kind of like you know juggling a different ball, right? Like if you want to take a an item from point A to point B, you know you have to get there without attacking something. So it kind of adds an interesting dynamic to picking up and carrying things across the level. Man, remember how badly we wanted a pick up and carry mechanic in a wizard lizard. Yeah, well, especially I mean, we thought it end, would be cool, but it was like a way too late kind of idea. It was, yeah. We we really wanted to add it, especially near the end, where we were adding those new mechanics like the uh, the soul powers and the totems, and we were like, oh man, wouldn't it be cool if like you know we could change how the shovel quest works? Just for example, like it'd be something you actually have to pick up, and move yeah. around with you. But yeah, it was just way too many like art implications. Like maybe we want frames where Raga's hands look full or something, and uh, like can you? Can you attack and just, yeah, just way too complicated for way too late in the game. But it was something that we recognized that would have uh, benefited the game overall a lot. Yeah, it really would have been pretty cool. But uh, I think that that also kind of harmonizes with our new direction for the overworld. Or not the overworld, but the uh, kind of the level maps where they're a contiguous level instead of being a room to room. They're more like Zelda 3. Although they're even kind of not that small screens so far. You know, they're more like uh, large areas, um, not room to room. Um, and so I think that carrying things around fits that pretty well. You got a uh, positive response to that in the stream yesterday. I did, yeah. Actually, it was really nice. I uh, More people than usual in the stream yesterday, which was great. And so many comments um, and stuff. It was like conversations happening. Fantastic. Yeah, good stuff. That was awesome. Um, plus, it was kind of fun because I had a lot of fun stuff to show off. And that was like, so far we've only just really talked about like the things that I did uh, previously to starting the stream. Right. Um, and then on the stream, I was working on some new props that you added to the game. You were drawing some, what we call props, which are really just like things in the world that kind of make it feel more populated. That comes from theater stage, right? Right. So like it's you like, you know, a card, cardboard cutout of a dude standing there to represent like a crowd in the background or, you know, more commonly like a table, you know, right. and it might even be used. It might be uh, something that, you know, actors put their feet up on during a scene or like it might even be part of the scene. It might be part of the action. Like, you know, there's a scene where the actor or the actress gets, you know, thrown onto the table. The table explodes like it might be part of the action. But the point is like it's just it's on the stage and you don't necessarily know for sure how you're going to use it yet. Everyone's surprised the table was rigged with explosives. Awesome. I'd, I'd go see that play. Yeah, I'm sure that you <laughs> Hey, Matt, you want to go see a play? Like, nah, it's got exploding tables. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's do this. For sure, yeah, why not? Let's go. <laughs> Take my Why money. are we still standing here? <laughs> yes. Anyway, so you made a bunch of that stuff, and I uh, kind of went through the process of putting into the game. Um, the simple props are really easy. Uh, then I also worked on an explosive crate, uh, which still needs some work. Um, one thing that I'm finding as I work on this stuff is that I want to leverage the Unity physics engine more than I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first started working on 
the prototype. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff kind of manually just because that's how I would have done it in HTML5. That's know, how Jeff did it. Huh? Jeff does it this way. That's right. Unity does it a different way. But you start <laughs> off with the default of the Jeff way because you are Jeff. Right. And like, I just didn't really even understand the Unity physics engine very well. You know, I kind of got the basic gist like, okay, rigid bodies have velocity and they have force and they have friction or whatever, drag, I guess they call it. Right. Uh, but I didn't know enough to be able to leverage it well. But now that I'm kind of getting more proficient and more experienced with Unity, I find myself uh, being able to leverage it more easily. And so one of the things I was working on yesterday was uh, trying to make the explosions push things away. So not only do damage, but they also kind of like shove things around. Nice. Which is a really cool kind of fun effect, and it makes it feel more explosive. Makes the game feel more alive, too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing I've really been uh, playing around with was, you know, trying to move a lot of the stuff in the direction of physics. Right. Um, just because I think it adds a little bit of interestingness. And there's a lot of, like, interesting game design um, implications. Like, already there's some, uh, some emergent behavior between certain things. Like, yeah, the slimes can uh, run into the, the TNT crates and blow themselves up. You were surprised. I that was. was so fun to watch because that's something we've been trying to bake deep into the fundamental game design is this element of surprise, right? And a good test for that, it's it's a difficult bar to hit, but a good test for that is if you can surprise yourself, like the developers, the people working on the game. And you were playing your stream yesterday, you're walking through the world, and, and you were like this sleuth, like a private eye. You found this dead slime with this puddle of blood, and you're like, whoa. Like, a slime died. Like, I don't think there's a bug. So, like, what what killed this slime, you know? And you're almost on, like, a mystery case, like, the world's right. smallest, <laughs> crappiest <laughs> mystery case. And you're, like, you're walking along, and then you saw the action. There's a slime just kind of bouncing around, you know, just following its algorithm. And then there's that uh, explosive crate, and the slime hits it and dies. And you're, like, ooh, there it is. We have, we've solved the riddle, you know? That's right. We experienced it firsthand. Yeah. That was really Eyewitness. cool to see that. Yeah, that was pretty fun. So that's the kind of stuff that like, you know, that particular instance, maybe I'm not sure if just running into things should trigger explosions, but um, like that's it. the kind of stuff that uh, we want to, yeah, bake into the game, like little surprises and having, you know, more interactivity between the pieces. That's one, another thing uh, in a Wizard's Lizard 1 that we really wished that we had handled differently. Yes. Uh, was the fact that like, the enemies could get slowed by webs, but that was really about it. Um, they couldn't really get affected by the wind traps, and they weren't really affected by spikes. And uh, they were affected by explosions, which was kind of fun. You could, like, you know, kite a bunch of zombies near a boom barrel and blow them all up, which was, well, that was pretty fun. But, you know, that was very limited. You know, there was just these these very simple, very controlled interactions. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, we're hoping for, yeah, a little bit more surprising, interesting, emergent emergent reactions so that was kind of a cutting corners decision almost you know like a lot of indies we need to decide if we're going to do certain things to see like maybe these things are too expensive to do right like we'd like to do that but we have to either find a cheaper way to do it or we just can't do it and we right. found that interaction going on like somewhere around the crypt run development period okay so it was really early times and you know, zombies are walking across spikes and we're like, oh, that doesn't feel good. You know, it should be cool where like everything's on the same playing field. Like games like that feel really awesome and have all this emergent gameplay. 
Uh, but then we turned that on, and basically what would happen is we had a lot of monsters using this chase algorithm, which was dumb, and basically just, I, I make a beeline for the player. I chased the player, right? And right. so a lot of monsters would just kill themselves, or you could so easily cheese them, and it, it just felt really bad. And even at that early stage of development, we'd already built almost too much to kind of justify going back and fixing it. And it also seemed like even if we did, we would have a much more expensive game to design and develop at the same right. time. And, you know, we've talked about this to death, but we had so much going on that we were like, just move on, <laughs> keep pushing forward. Right. But we lamented that decision. We're like, oh, it would have been so cool. So we wanted to make sure to bake that into the sequel. Which is kind of the direction we're going now is like I'm working on kind of the fundamental interactions between things before even like adding a whole bunch of monster behaviors because the monster behaviors uh, need to compensate for like the rules of the world. Yes. You know, like I think one of the big problems with the Wizards Lizard 1 was that the entities had like these really hardcore, not hardcore, <laughs> hard-coded monster <laughs> behaviors. And so if they were affected by the world in such a way, like some other object, like a fan or something, that they would sort of break. Yeah, uh, sometimes or they like move too slowly like in the case of the zombies like the fan was actually kind of implemented badly in the sense that it was like this constant um kind of suction right and so slower entities like zombies would just get sucked right into the middle and they couldn't do anything yeah that's and, a tough uh, one it is a tough one yeah the so, fans especially those gravity fans we talk about those are something that made uh, like, they're really fun. They're good game mechanics and stuff, but they made the world feel less real somehow because you'll have, like, these bats flying around or these zombies moving or something, and you are being drastically affected by this wind, this thing that just exists in the world. But the enemies aren't, and it kind of takes you out. Like, it kills the immersion, right? Yeah. You know, because you have to think about, like, hey, why aren't those... Because like, it feels unfair to you, maybe, as well, right? And you're like, why aren't these bats getting affected by this wind, you know? Anyway... And it, uh, you know, basically eliminates the chance that something surprising could happen as an interaction between the enemies and the wind. Yes, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. You know, Again, you had actually done a really good job with uh, Project Skirmish. Uh, you'd gone in and done some kind of, like, very simple behavior for, like, monsters want to avoid spikes now. Yeah. You know? I wish we'd had that for uh, AWL one, but uh, that was something we weren't going to learn <laughs> how to do it, uh, you know, elegantly for another year to a year and a half. You know what's really interesting? I was really proud of that uh, revelation that I had because essentially the way that we had code working in Wizards Lizard One was that the chase algorithm would just seek out one particular entity and focus on it, and then yep. make a beeline for it with like you know subtracting the vector and, and then calculating the angle <clears throat> and then moving along that angle. Right. Um, but it would really just be completely ignorant of like spikes in its way or uh, immovable blocks or whatever, right? There's, it couldn't route around stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about using A-star to solve that problem. Um, but that's kind of heavy and, and the constant rerouting of A-star is also kind of janky, you know? Like, uh, it kind of has this thing where, like, it'll start going down one path, and as soon as the best path changes, it'll make a different path, and which is okay, but it, I don't know. I've never gotten that kind of a system to feel great. Actually, Lava Blade used A-Star 2, and it actually had heuristics, right? All, all the right pieces, it felt like, but 
we would get in these situations where you would have, say, like a goblin behind a pile of rocks, and there's two different ways you can go. You can go, you know, above or below. And the goblin, based on the heuristics and the A-star pathing, would kind of toggle back and forth. Almost like, you know, I'm sure if, uh, you know, if our listeners have played, like, a lot of chess games, sometimes the AI will just go, ring, 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 back and forth between two spots. Right, because which, it keeps changing what it thinks is optimal. Yeah, and that was going on in Lava Blade, and it makes sense, you know, like things are moving slightly, but it's like th- there needs to be some almost memory involved of like, no, I- I'm committed to this. If I went back now, I would have wasted time or whatnot. Like, it stuff gets really complicated. It does. I think that's really just bad scoring on my part. Like, I should have weighted things. You know, I, I didn't spend enough time tweaking the weights because your heuristic algorithm is only as good as how you weight stuff, essentially. Right. And so it just wasn't balanced well enough where like the movement cost um, should have probably been scored, you know, either higher or lower to compensate for the fact that you're, you know, going around. We had this stealth arcade type game as an early prototype that we were working on too. And uh, we had a star for the entities that would kind of chase you. And it was a little weird because they would sometimes do that same thing. They'd kind of bounce left and right between two different squares uh when they really just wanted to go down (laughs) to get to you right you know like that's very rigid uh when you have like a real-time action game you know where it's down to the pixel and you could be moving like to the left like two pixels or something but your a star a star algorithm is wrapped around this you know cell based grid which might have like each tile might be 80 by 80 pixels so it's like uh the errors it makes become much more exaggerated uh right so uh, the the simple solution that I found, which, which was kind of nice, was that I just uh, used like a flocking algorithm to make the enemies avoid things that were bad. So uh, we actually implemented a flocking algorithm in ADBL1 where like a bunch of zombies chasing you would kind of spread out, right? Like the zombies didn't want to be right on top of each other. So not only would they be chasing you, but they'd also be trying to avoid being stacked up. And so what that, in effect, what would happen is that they would say, okay, I want to chase the target, and so the target is at such and such an angle for me. So that's kind of the starting point. And then it would look at all the other uh, zombies that were too close, and then it would modify that vector to push them away from from the other zombies. And so they would kind of, you know, move not straight towards their target, but like as a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, in the middle of towards our target and away from the other zombies. I flocking love that algorithm. Yeah, it's great. But I realized that I could just use that for spikes. Like, zombies don't want to be near spikes. So they can flock with spikes. That's a common or thing not. you'll see people make videos of is, uh, you know, they, they've tweeted this to us and we've seen this on Steam too. You can make Steam videos. But that's a common thing people will find is like, oh, you know, zombies come out of graves. I wonder how many I could get going. And you'll see these like hordes of 100 zombies, you know? Yeah. And it's surprising because that bet usually performs pretty decently and it works really well. They really do just glom together, but they keep seeking you out. It, it feels great. Yeah, they feel like this big horde of things. And you're like, no. And then it's fun because you can blow them up in mass and it feels great. Yes. that. Uh, oh, man. We meant to do this like achievement where, you know, if you could kill... N zombies with a, a single hit or within a short period of time or something like basically wrapping an achievement around that thing that people are really enjoying doing in the game which is just getting a cluster of zombies and killing them yeah <laughs> someday awesome yeah so anyways uh flocking can be used like that and it works out really well and so uh that's the kind of stuff that i think that uh we'll be looking towards you know 
enemies that are a little bit smarter about their surroundings. They can look at all the things within a certain radius and say, I don't want to be near that. So let me push myself away, you know, basically alter my heading such that I'm going to be moving away from that. And, and you can weight those things too. So uh, I think the way that I handled it in one of our prototypes for Project Skirmish was that, um, you know, they, they really wanted to chase their target um, and they definitely wanted not to be near spikes. But you could still get them to go into spikes, but it was a lot harder. You know, it took a lot more skill, I guess you could call it, to get them to run into spikes because they really didn't want to. But they wanted to chase you more. So if that makes sense. What it required basically was skill and then also system knowledge, which I think that's fair game because that's kind of figuring out games, right? It's right. like you understand what the game's all about and you're able to execute on it. And as long as it doesn't feel too easy or too cheap, like that's the real complaint people have, right? Like as long as it's doable, it's fine. As long as like people have to earn it, right? Right. Yeah, because in AWL1, like you could just... If, if the spikes actually hurt zombies, for example, you could just stand behind spikes and the zombies would just walk right into them. No effort, nothing. Yeah, no effort. Yeah. But if it was like, you know, oh, you had to get a certain amulet and use it on them and then they become dumb and then they walk into it or just, just anything for you to have to utilize the game to accomplish the goals. Right. Yeah. So anyways, uh, that was pretty fun. Um, but again, I think that the the right approach in this case is to build up a lot of the fundamental building blocks first. You know, first get this the world interactions down the way we want. You know, because someone in the stream yesterday was, you know, saying how there's only one monster in the the prototype right now. And that's, there's actually a couple, but I don't really use very many of them um, for testing purposes. But I'm just not at the step yet where I'm ready to create a whole bunch of different monster eyes because the fundamental, like, interactions between monsters in the world, um, I'm not done with yet. You were pretty much around this stage of making the engine and the game, you know, a year, two years ago, something like that. Uh, and I started jumping in and just creating a bunch of content. And as then, do. yeah, as, as I do. And then later, we, you know, when you have something like, oh my God, content in a video game, that's so valuable. That's like, that's like what we're supposed to be building all the time. You know, it felt way more valuable than it should have. And so we didn't have the. Uh, I don't know, I guess the strength or, or the energy discipline, to, to yeah. The discipline, yeah, to cut it and be like, no, 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 that was all, that that should be seen as a playground. We were kind of fooling around figuring out how to use the system and what kind of stuff we could be building. None of this is permanent and should be shipping, but that is ended up <laughs> what happened. But now we're, we're at the point where even though you're at that stage, we're not just going to start jumping in <laughs> and building. We're going to, you know, slowly and deliberately build it out. Smartly is is the hope. Right, yes. The hope. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> Um, I had a, a thought about your your stream. Actually, a lot of people have been commenting that, like, "Wow, you're you're learning really fast, right?" Um, and I think you are too. You've been moving really quickly with Unity, and I think that one of the reasons um, you've been able to do that is because you've kind of had this focus while you've been working in it. I guess two focuses really. One is uh, you've been wanting to do it the Unity way, like you were talking about earlier, instead of just like. You know, the when Jeff you're given way. a task, yeah, the Jeff way, or like the way this is random internet article said, you know, like that can be a, a really overwhelming problem. It's like, how should I implement this? Because because with a tool as powerful as Unity or just programming in general, there's usually a, an infinite amount of ways you could go about it, right? right? But you've had this kind of Unity focus. Anytime you're like, how should I do it? Well, how would Unity want me to do it? What's the best, most Unity way to do it? You know, and that's, think- that's kind of answered questions for you. It has, and 
kind of like if you dig just below the surface there, like the real underlying uh, motivation there is I want to do it the easy way. The easy way, yeah. Like it's not that I want to do it the Unity way, or I do want to do it the Unity way, but the reason I want to do it the Unity way is because the Unity way is already done. <laughs> yes. So I, I want to move more quickly and I want to have less reinventing of the wheel and I want to work on code uh, that I find like mentally stimulating, you know? like uh, procedural dungeon generation or something. Right. There was a, uh, an article, I started following this uh, really cool site called Raptitude. I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes. Basically, it's about how to like, I don't know, live a better life, sort of, you know, to keep yourself from getting in these ruts and just to be happier and that kind of stuff. And uh, one of them was all about how like, sometimes the more difficult things are actually easier in the long run. And that simple change of, thinking can really help you with stuff. So like for an example, like let's say uh, like dieting or something or like taking the stairs, you know, you might be like, yeah, it's easier to take the elevator right now. But if I take the stairs, then I'm healthier and that's easier because, uh, you know, I won't have to go to the doctor so much and I'll feel better on a daily basis. You know what I mean? Right. Or like some people might be like, you know, I go to the gym uh, three times a week because it's just easier when I don't do that. I gain a lot of weight and I feel horrible and I get sick. Or I don't know why all my examples are health related. These are probably um, probably because the ones that uh, the author used in the in the article. But there's other things too. You know, you might be like, it's easier. It might be easier now for me to write some bad code. Here it is. Back to tech, right? <laughs> but like three months, six months from now, it's going to be much harder because I'm going to have to keep this product alive, and then I'll have accumulated all this code debt. You know, all this technical debt. That's not good. And so the harder way is easier in the long run. And that, right. that just that change of, of mind can can make a big difference in how you approach stuff. I think it's also true uh, for like a particular product like Unity, where you know the more I learn about the way that it wants to do things or the way that it can do things, then future problems become easier because I know like okay, this is how I did it before in Unity, and it was really easy, and this is the frictionless way, and now I can make that decision more quickly. Right. Nice. Um, as opposed to you know every time you come to Roadblock, you're like okay how do I implement this thing? Because I've written all my own solutions until now, so I have to write another of my own solutions as opposed to being able to fall back on, you know, the strength of the platform or whatever. Yeah, I like it a lot being very Unity-centric, you know, because uh, Unity itself is not going to be the most portable thing, you know? If we ever want to switch platforms, it's probably going to be uh, brutal, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, as long as, we're, as long as we're in Unity, let's get all the way in. I think that's... Uh, you know, for me, at least, it feels like a pretty good idea. And, you know, I think that, you know, hopefully we'll be using Unity for a while. But even if we aren't, I think that we'll, in the future, we'll always try to make decisions that maximize our productivity. You know, like Unity isn't necessarily the be-all, yeah. end-all of everything. Um, but it's a good tool for the time being. And then when something else comes around later that's that's better, we can switch to it and, you know, kind of keep that going. Instead of being in this kind of, custom engine trap i mean some people will kind of talk about the virtues of your custom engine all day long but that's a whole conversation yeah i sometimes have a hard time letting go of the whole like but html5 is open source and it's so it's free and so open isn't it wonderful it is wonderful but like people have been singing that song for a very long time and it has certain benefits in in certain cases you know i'm not going to say that it's not beneficial at all but it's at best situationally beneficial. You know, in the context of a lot of products, being open source or being built on open technologies doesn't 
actually have any strong benefits for you? Like, what would you say we've benefited from a wizard's lizard being built on Omen Tech? Hmm, let's see. No, I don't know, man. There's, there's probably hasn't been many. Um, one, one kind of analogy I use in my head, because I like analogies, is uh, I, I think of clay, like you're building something with clay, right? And once you've baked it, it's solid. It's immobile. You can't really change it too much, right? And you kind of have that same effect with the platform lock-in, right? And so it might feel like when you're building on something like HTML5, it's very open, very malleable. You have this soft clay you can use, right? But, but, but you don't. You don't. You That's still the have thing. the same type of platform lock-in, sort of. Like we got locked into Node WebKit, pretty much had to use that. These days, there's actually a bunch of different options that kind of do the same stuff. But then we had on the additional prerequisite of Greenworks. And that one definitely had to be built onto Node WebKit. And then uh, later on, like a specific version of Node WebKit. So at that point, our clay is very baked, very hard. Like we, we can't really take a wizard's lizard, even though it was built in HTML5, and kind of transplant that into like a different software uh, stack, right? Like we, that would be right. very difficult for us to do. Right, because the Greenworks API, which inter, uh, interacts with Steam, is very platform-specific. And the code we have that interacts with Node WebKit, like Node WebKit has some of these ideas and concepts that your web application stack isn't going to have, right? Like close the window, right? Uh, things like that, right? And that API is specific to Node WebKit as well. So like you already are in this position where, you know, we could theoretically switch to something like Atom Shell or instead of Node WebKit, but Atom Shell is going to have its own API to do things like closing the window and whatever else. To this day, there is no uh, gamepad uh, API that allows you to like trigger the screensaver turning off, to our knowledge, in the HTML5 slash Node WebKit stack. Or I guess we should call yeah. it NWJS. We should, yeah. yeah. But, the new, but either way, new that's hardness. that's a problem we just, I, I don't think we can fix right now. We're just like, yeah, Wizard Lizard might just start the screensaver like in the middle of combat. <laughs> that, that could totally happen. There's nothing we can do about it. But anyway, um, we don't want to. Anyways, harp. not to rag on HTML5 too much. No, Obviously, no. we spend a lot of time making those uh, <laughs> kinds of apps, and we really love it. But you know, prediction. What? This time next year, we'll be like, ah, oh, here's all these problems with Unity. <laughs> well, it's probably Unity true, doesn't you know. let you do this. You can't do that. We had these the platform lock in, and you know, life repeats. At itself. the very least, it should be better for our primary use case, which is pushing desktop games to Steam. I'm excited about for one, not getting like one comment per day, one review, one post, one anything that you want to say per day about like speed problems, the optimization problems, right? And then yeah. I'm also really excited about the possibility of launching on consoles, maybe even mobile devices. Like Unity's, you know, it's it's got a big net you can cast, whereas uh, HTML5 sometimes has a, a lower ceiling with uh, regard to consoles and stuff. Yeah, and well, like it's it's very difficult. You know, we found just trying to implement... Uh, the game on Wii U, like even trying to take this open web stack application and move it to a proprietary implementation of JavaScript, HTML5, etc. Yeah. Like there's problems. Like you can't just take your web game that you wrote optimized for Chrome and put it on this other environment where they have, you know, yeah, it's V8 or whatever it is. You know, it doesn't have to be V8. It could be. Um, you put on this other platform, and all of a sudden, like the performance implications are different. You know, like the array speed is completely different. The rendering bottleneck is not the case anymore. Now it's about JavaScript execution instead of 
how many pixels you're painting to the screen every frame. And yeah. it completely changes the way that you have to build and focus on optimization uh, for your HTML5 app. And that's, that's really difficult. Just to prove that we're not totally against it or anything, we were actually talking about uh, there's another indie speed run coming up, which... I don't know. Maybe we'll get to this time. Um, we contributed to the last two. These have been the only game jams we've actually done. People ask us a lot about uh, the other ones. I, I don't know the pronunciation. I th- I've heard it was Ludum Dare, but that's probably the most common one. Uh, the people call it LD. LD. Yeah, that's good. LD speed jam, game jam, whatever you want to call it. But uh, that basically that forty-eight hour kind of approach, like Indie Speedrun, has that same thing going on. Uh, and we were talking about how we might go back to Jin for that, just because. Um, you know, less learning, more just kind of rapid, uh, fast, fast-moving development, right? Yeah, and uh, primarily for those kinds of game jams, like your games go on the web, right? Like the majority of people that are going to play those games are going to be way more likely to play them if they can just play them right in line instead of having to download anything. Like I have perused, like whenever I see like a tweet in my feed about someone's like, oh, yeah, play my like you know, uh, LD entry and it's like, you know, click here to download for windows. I'm like, Nope. <laughs> yeah. I often wonder about that. I wonder if most people see the download and it's a turnoff or I've also seen this argument. Uh, we were talking about this. It was like, maybe that seems more legit, you know, like if I, anybody can make a web game pretty quickly, you know, uh, or just send you a URL and whatever, it's less impressive. It's, it's almost like anything on the internet in general, instead of like, more legitimized like in the actual real world like ooh, downloadable or like ooh, a print magazine or something you know it's like (laughs) in some cases people might see a download and think of it as a more legit game than a web game we've we've seen some people express that opinion so that's kind of interesting it's hard because you know my opinion is not that at all right like i know how easy it is to create even the crappiest exe right (laughs) (laughs) and so for me it's just you know i mean it's Sort of contradictory, I guess, because we just got done talking about how, you know, uh, we want to make EXEs and not web games. But I think in the case of, like, demos or, you know, game jam games, yeah. uh, I don't really want to wait because I, I don't feel like the experience will be that great anyway. Right. You know, mo- most of the, the games are, <laughs> like, they're fun and interesting, but are they worth downloading and unzipping and then trying? No. I mean, especially if you want to play, like, dozens of these games right yeah it's more of the rapid pace approach and it makes a lot of sense in that context because it really is about like we want people to do two things one we want you to play the game and two we want you to enjoy it you know and any barriers we put in front of you like we want you to play the game well first you have to download it we are there's going to be some greater than zero amount of drop-off and it's probably going to be pretty significant like a third, right. I would guess, just based on this, you know, weak marketing knowledge that I've got. <laughs> Something like based that. Based on the figures coming out of your butt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did you know? You can't even see me. How did you know where I got them? <laughs> uh, I just made a good guess, I guess. Yeah. So did I. Yes. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, That's I the point. I don't even know if it is a good guess. Anyway, yeah, some, some greater than zero number, for sure. Somebody will be like, meh, next. You. You, sir. Me, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You'll lose Jeff. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Web games are better than downloadable games in that context because you don't want to lose Jeff. 100% of Jeff's will bounce. That's that's the takeaway. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll put a link to our old uh, indie speed run games, which are on the web and are playable uh, in the web, uh, in the show notes. So if you haven't checked those out, be sure to do that. And actually, the more recent one, Retreat to the Jeep, was built on like a very early engine of a wizard's lizard, which will probably be... Uh, not surprising when you play it. <laughs> right. 
So um, you've been drawing stuff. I have. I've been drawing a lot. Um, that's what you were using. It was your, your ammo, your fuel for your, for your stream yesterday. Um, actually, coming off of the three-day weekend, I sometimes find this. Um, it's getting less and less the more I, I draw and stuff. But like, I sometimes I, I get dusty or like um, uh, stiff. You know what I mean? Like, um, I'm looking for some words here. <laughs> you know, like you need to stretch before you work out or something. Yeah, you're like um, <laughs> sore. I guess stiff is the there's right something word. about podcasting. It lowers your IQ, man, like 20, 20 points or something. You know, <laughs> words don't come as easily. You feel like uh, paired. It could be the alcohol you drink before the show. <laughs> no, that helps. <laughs> oh, okay. that's good stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, I need to loosen up, you know. And I, uh, I had like this big task, which was like the next next tasks I want to finish are like do all of the garden environment because we have like placeholders kind of like the right pieces in the right place but i need to basically you know refine it and render it and the same deal with the house environment so it's like and that's a lot of work i think it was 36 tiles in each set and i'm like yeah here we go no problem let's do it today and then it's the kind of thing like with game dev in general you know you look you're at the bottom of the mountain you look at the top of the mountain and it's all covered by clouds so far Uh, so i was like um that's the kind of barrier I used to hit several months ago and be like, uh, you know, just no art comes out of me that day. Or I, I will just find some programming task that I get to do. Or I will like create some mark. Like, oh, I've been meaning to do these marketing tasks or update the website or just something to distract me away from the work that needs to be done, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yesterday I was like, no, I'm just I, like the, the main habit to get into is you just draw all the time. I'm just drawing, 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 drawing. And I was like, there's a million objects we want in the game, you know, chests, barrels, crates, pots, plants, boxes, tables, chairs, couches, lamps. I, I could go on and lizards. on. Yeah, lizards. There will definitely be lizards and also possibly wizards in the game. But there's like an endless amount of stuff to just start drawing. And um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to draw one. I started with the bucket and I hated it and I didn't let it affect me and I moved on and I drew a jar and I was like, that looks fine. I drew a, a crate and I was like, that looks better. And I drew a chest. And by that time I was like, having a lot of fun. And before I knew it, like two to four hours or something went by, you know? Nice. I love when that kind of thing happens. I also hated your bucket. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I knew it was bad <laughs> and I was like, should I even bother? And I was like, that, that's been something I've needed to get over as well is um, the difference between something being finished and not perfect. You know, like yes. that, that's a lesson that I think that you can learn repeatedly your whole life. You know, because I will be like, with Raga, it took me a long time because I was like, I wanted him to look much, much better than he used to. And so I'd be like, it's not perfect, it's not perfect, it's not perfect. And then I was like, you know what? It looks better. It doesn't look nearly as good as I want it to, but it doesn't matter because I need to go to the next step. And the next step is eight different directions and then animations. And like, I have this ocean of stuff to do, so I just need to, to do it, you know? Right. And so that's kind of what the, where the bucket came from is I was like, I hate this bucket, but I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to move on. And now that it's there, I can look at it and I can find definitive things about it i can find like these are the specific things i don't like about it that i can do better next time whereas when i was at the bottom of that hill to climb to make that bucket i didn't have any of that insight you know so i'm in a much better position now to draw a better bucket (laughs) if that i was kidding though i don't i don't really hate the bucket so you didn't kick the bucket but uh (laughs) that's definitely a a good perspective to have and i think it's interesting because i think that we've had that perspective on code more Often then we've had it about other things, um, even like monster behaviors, like you were talking about before. It's kind of like 
uh, I've never had a problem bulldozing game systems. Yeah. You know, like as I'm creating these things, like I've refactored, I've, I've taken multiple passes at dungeon generation and it's never felt bad. Um, but then for some reason we had this like mental hurdle where, you know, oh, we created all these monsters. Like we don't want to get rid of them because we spent time on them and we love them and they're beautiful snowflakes. <laughs> and, uh, and then it gets even worse when you start talking about art. Like when you first started drawing stuff, I think you were very hesitant to, you know, go back. It was like, this is finished. I'm done. I'm closing this book. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of iteration uh, iteration happening. It felt like walking on hot coals to me. It was like, once you do it, you're done. You know, you crossed it, you, you did it, you feel good. And, and like, it, it never any, at any point did it feel like, you know, I was done and there wasn't just a ton more stuff to do, you know? So I would see it as these tiny little things to accomplish and I would put them in my rear view mirror. Like, I'm, I'm done. I'm moving past them. You know what I mean? And I, I yeah. think there's a lot of lessons to learn there. Like, one of them is that we were not a game, like a proper game studio, almost. We were not able to pump out creatures. We're not able to pump out monsters. You know, we were able to crank out code like nobody's business because we were paid to do it professionally for years and years. That was like, that was our comfort zone. You know, we can write code all day and be happy as clams. But when we branched out, we're less comfortable. And the more, like, the farther we branch out, the less comfortable we are, you know? So, like, creating a new monster, we might be like ah, oh, it's got all this work. I mean, I guess there's a lot of code and we could do that again pretty easily. I would have to animate, like draw, basically design a new monster, draw it in four different angles and then animate it. And God, like it just sounds like days of agonizing work to me at the time, you know? And so I didn't want and to do it. It's interesting because, you know, it kind of uh, highlights the fact that like when we were doing code professionally, we were infrastructure engineers, essentially, right? Like you and I were creating the platform like we were creating the code that served web pages but we were never content creators yeah right? yeah someone else was creating the content for mm. the websites and uh, we were just working on the systems and so we were just you know working away on just these mechanics essentially these fundamentals but we never had to worry about actually creating content and having to redo wow. content and things like that that's a good point dude we were never previously content creators you know if we were it was on a very small basis like i, I had a web dev blog or you know like you know a hobby writing short stories or just like you know that was the content we were creating was never stuff we were professionally paid to do it was always in like an amateur hobbyist kind of uh, mentality you know and that might be one of the we reasons even, we were scared of like you know the graphics and stuff is because when working as a especially a front-end engineer in the web development stack you can see sometimes and sometimes you're very heavily involved in uh the expense of the graphic design you know you've got designers who are like i was doing nothing but this design for a month and they start to give you these assets and you're like whoa this is like the really baked assets like i don't want to have to ask for any of this to change necessarily you know it felt uh kind of expensive and magical right right yeah i don't really feel that way anymore i think a big part of it is just like um because i'm just drawing all the time now at, at some point uh, many months ago i decided to be a person who draws a lot and now <laughs> when i'm given a task to draw some stuff i'm not as overwhelmed you know i'm like i can pump out i can pump out a couple of monsters today if you want me to draw a bunch of objects i can do that and if the if like i'm actually almost more excited about the stuff i've already done badly because i know that i'll be able to do it better whereas the stuff i haven't done before i'm a little nervous about it because like to me that's the most painful part of doing the art is when it's bad which is like it's a consistent thing and i bet this is true for every artist is you've got like <laughs> you hate a certain percentage of the stuff that you're making, right? And hopefully right. there's a certain part of it that you like, and that's why you do it, is to, just because you enjoy it and, and you're hoping it'll be better and better as you go. 
but like you know something i haven't drawn before like the more out of my wheelhouse it is that stuff is uh is more painful to draw because i'm pretty sure it'll turn out badly but it's also fun because you know it's it's new and exciting to learn as you go yeah it's kind of a the perspective i've had on unity stuff recently is that you know some of the stuff can be frustrating because it takes me longer to do certain things than it would in a language i'm or you know an environment i'm more comfortable with like the web but there's also uh you know uh, an attractive quality to kind of learning new things and you know kind of being able to produce with less work Mm -hmm. in the end hopefully yeah um there's a really interesting article that uh Hey guys, we actually had about another 20 minutes of conversation and of course amazing banter for you, but alas, we tried some new software today and lost some audio data. Uh, uh, As you heard, we salvaged about an hour, uh, but sorry for the abrupt ending there. Also wanted to say a sincere thanks for all the tweets, all the retweets, forum posts, Steam reviews. We read it all, we love it. It gives us that shot of motivation and encouragement and we really appreciate it. You're being played out with Love Song. This is the DCT remix on Waveform Collection.
This, oh, hey, this is uh, episode 131. And I'm Matt Hackett. <laughs> Love it.